Okay, folks, um, if you will find with me uh, Psalm 27 again, and we'll look at verse 10 of Psalm 27. In, in Psalm 27, verse 10, David writes, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word. Father God, I pray, Lord, that I will do it the way you have sent me to do it tonight, Father God. I, I pray, God, for the preparation that, that you have made in my heart, Father God, not because of you, Father, but I pray, God, that I have I've paused long enough and my heart's been clear enough and my brain quiet enough, Father God, that I could really hear you beforehand, that I could hear you, you expressing yourself, Father God, through the sacredness of your word, Father God, that my heart would burn with it and that I would feel, God, that the necessity of it myself, Lord. I, I don't want to just fill time, Father God, but I pray, God, that every time the Bible is opened in this church, that that. God, supernatural things happen because the Bible is a supernatural book. As much as it's crystal clear, Father God, and it's uh, in its perspicuity, Father God, as much as it's it's timely, Father God, in its application always, I know, Father God, that it does miraculous things. And I always pray, God, for those miraculous things to be done. Do miraculous things in us tonight, Father God. And do it, Father God, I pray, God, through, through a proclamation of your word. I pray first and foremost, Father God, that I'm able to do it tonight, to do what you sent me to do. And then I pray, Father God, uh, God, so much, Lord, that you would... Open up hearts and minds in this room tonight that we would hear your word, Father God, that, that any deception that's in us would be chased away. And that tonight, Father God, men and women can honestly hear what you have to say about such an important issue, Lord. We love you, Father God. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Look, folks, as believers in Christ Jesus, those who've been transformed from, from what was once dead tissue into living flesh by the power of the gospel... I want to declare tonight that our future is not uncertain, but it is a guaranteed byproduct of the new birth. Everything that's promised to us today absolutely will transpire. God does not uh, welch or go back on His promises. He simply does not do that. What our God has promised will transpire in both the good and the bad. And for us, for those of us who are, who are tonight dependent upon the gospel, dependent upon uh, the grace of God, all of this is possible because of a single action. We always want to remind ourselves of that. We're going to begin every sermon with a, with a, re, with a reminder that that's why we gather. We gather because the, of the death of the Savior on the cross of Calvary for the sins of His people. We don't ever want, to, we don't ever want that single detail to get very far from our minds. Because our minds will go afield and we will concentrate on the minutia of the text at times. Not seeing what God's really saying to us there. And we'll also read it, as I've told you before, oftentimes we'll go to God's Word and read it like a Hallmark card. We want something out of it ahead of time. And, and so often the Bible will, in our mistaken hearts, deliver to us the smallness of what we think we need and not the grandeur of what God knows we need. So we want to remind ourselves of, of that root source of why we are here. But also two very specific words in the Greek language. It's not a heavy Greek thing. It's just, just a few moments. As I've said before, I'm no expert in that. I just read. I look up. And, and, and I'm okay with that. 
Paul in Ephesians 1.5, a, a, a very consequential verse, he writes, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. But there's a lot going on in this verse. And it's much to do with David's declaration of what I'm calling divine adoption in Psalm 27 verse 10. First, Paul says that this adoption is a predestined event. The word for predestined in Greek is proorizo, which means to foreordain, to mark out ahead of time, or literally to predestine. It's synonymous with that. But also Paul uses another Greek word for adoption, quiothesia, which means to be placed as a son in the divine family. Now I want to stop for that just a second, because I think we need to to maybe look at adoption, even though it's something that's very sacred to our church, specifically because of our experiences, what families are, have been through and what families are, are, are going through right now. Adoption is part of, of what I would like to call that collective identity of First Baptist Church. We're a place that does that. And it's a wonderful thing. But I think sometimes we think of adoption just in emotional terms. Not a bad thing. As supplying love where at one time love was denied. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Children, I, I hesitate to say deserve, but children absolutely need love. Without it, they grow up stunted. They grow up held back. They're not able to achieve anything like the potential that God has for them if they do not experience that love. They need the loving touch. They need the encouragement. They need those things. They absolutely do. And if any of us in this room have grown up in a situation where we just didn't really get that, you understand how hard it is to grow without that. Without that kind of love. But at the same time, I, I just don't think the Bible limits its term of adoption to just being loved. To just being loved, even if that love is pure and right and true. Because it's so much more than that. To be made a full member of the divine family means to receive all of the privileges that go with being part of the divine family. When you've adopted children into your homes, you have made them inheritors, haven't you? They will one day receive everything that, the, the, that those children that might be biologically born to your family receive, won't they? There will be within your wills, those of you who have been through this, no difference, is there? For the biological children, this. But for those we have blessed with our adoption, this. No, legally speaking, there will be no difference, will there be? They are the same. They are your child. And in fact, I might add, as I believe it was David Platt who so wonderfully makes this point, the radical difference in adoption and natural birth is this. Is that you know the sex beforehand or not, right? Or not. And that's okay too. That's awesome. But you've really never met your child till they emerge, have you? Who picked your child for you? God did. God did. But if you're undergoing the adoption process, you literally do what? There is some very intentional selection by mom and dad. Mom and dad have chosen this child for adoption. And we understand the sovereignty of God. We understand the depth and the beauty of that sovereignty. But we also understand that God's sovereignty works through even our own choices. Is, is fully realized in our own choices. So here's the reality. The reality is that in some ways adoption is just an even more beautiful example of what God does for us through family. So, so to limit adoption just, just folks to, to an emotion... 
is to rob it of some of the beauty of the idea that, that what so much of the world is without, and that is the material blessings are laid out. And, and who has more material blessings to give than, than a God who, who selects men and women for divine adoption? Who can give the world? Everything is ours through divine adoption. Literally, now the first term refers to pre-establishing the boundaries of something. It's the most literal definition of, of prorizo is that, that boundaries have been marked out ahead of time. Pre-established boundaries. It's just that in this situation, God is marking out these pre-established boundaries in terms of salvation itself. The single most important issue for humanity. That is salvation. And God has, 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 not just Brother Kyle on Wednesday night, but all of us have said repeatedly, what's so beautiful about this is that God realized that we were not trustworthy. And that only He was trustworthy. And if He did not act, it would have all fallen apart in response to our ineptitude, our incapacity, our own wickedness and bitterness. God responded in love. He marked out the boundaries, the way of salvation, clearly and literally, and to all for whom it would apply. God has marked out salvation for the world before it even began. He willed by decree that man would sin and that Christ would die for those sins and some but not all would repent of their sins and believe the gospel. And that is an absolutely truthful statement. And I will say this, it is a statement that still when I say it, it feels so hard on the tongue. Some but not all. But it's not something that we should be shocked about. We've all understood from the teachings of the Scripture that every single man, woman, and child, no matter how much we might desire that to be so, in any way capacity, in the broken and wicked way that humanity can desire things, even if we intellectually or emotionally desired it, we understand this much that every single man, woman, and child will not be born again. We can want that. Our hearts can long for that. The Word of God expresses a, a deep felt desire among God for that to be, but, but it is not so. It is just simply not so. Not all would repent of their sins and believe the gospel. The truth is powerful, but it's biblical, and it comes with amazing blessings for the believer. And this is seen through David's words of adoption when he writes in 2710, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Forsaken by your parents. The people that are supposed to care for you the most, don't just they're not just bad at it. They're not just, just emotionally or psychologically or, or whatever incapable. They have forsaken you. They want no part of you. You're supposed to be loved by your father and your mother and you are cast out. Forsaken. Forsaken. David expresses an unbelievable emotion that, to be honest with you, much of the world probably can, can identify with. And his response is that, that father and mother forsake me, but... It doesn't matter because the Lord will take me in. It doesn't matter because I have a, a Heavenly Father ready and waiting right now. Even though the ones in this world who are supposed to care for me are hateful or negligent, Christ has a different will for me than the perceivable one. Now that is the thing that I think we have to really... I know it's, a, it's nuanced and it's my words, and I don't apologize for that because I've got to try to communicate a truth with you. But that's the idea that oftentimes I think men and women, not just 
Not just young ones. I deal with a lot of young people. But people our age, collectively, older than me and younger than me, can, can be very much plugged into a will that they can perceive for themselves. That, that may or may not be a byproduct of the fact that God has called them uh, into light, out of darkness. May very well be simply what they've inherited from those who would have forsaken them or neglected them. Who won't believe what God can do. And what, what I will say, what I believe David says here, is that what I will perceive, what I'm able to perceive, is nothing in comparison to what God is capable of doing. What God's will holds for me. What God's will holds for you. It's a future that's not dependent on the will of men or women. But that's another amazing Amazing idea is that what God will do with me, my boss doesn't have to go along with. Human beings can stand in the way of and God is unconcerned. He doesn't weep or wring His hands. God's not scared of money. And He's not scared of a lack of time. And He's not scared of a lack of energy. God will provide resources. I'm not limited by what I perceive people are going to let me do. So glad to do this, but I'll never get off work. So glad to do this, but the church won't go along with me. So glad to do this, but I can't find the time or the energy or the money. Nonsense. Nonsense. God will do us, according to His will, exactly what He has prescribed to do. It's not lim limited by, by the will of men or women, or restricted by my lack of foresight or my hardness of heart. More than any other thing, the, the realized will of God in my life is only tempered, more often than not, by the fact that I simply refuse to see what God is, is showing me. As, as brothers, we talked about the idea of, of meditating on the Word of God, not so we can feel, but so we can see. Wonderful words you use. So we can see. So I know. God, show me what you want me to see. Show me in the Word, God, the, not the limits, but the, but the infinite limits of what you're capable of doing, what you want to do through me. Don't let my own foresight be a limitation. And at the same time, don't let the hardness of my heart be a limitation. If anyone's an example of that, it's Jonah. God is calling Jonah to something that the hardness of his heart wanted to prevent. And it took a, took a mighty work, a, a radical work, a supernatural work for Jonah to see beyond the hardness of his own heart. The, the limits of my own foresight are the hardness of my heart. Look, when I needed Him, God acted in my best interest. And Christ does this because of who He is and not who I am. The, the relationship begins that way. We talk about it as a relationship. The relationship begins that way. I never sought God. He sought me. At the moment in which I was the closest to the fires of hell, the, the graciousness of God discovered me. And He discovered you. When we were doomed, Christ said no. When we would have gladly perished, Christ revived us. He didn't settle for what we could see because He knew what He saw. Christ does this because of who He is 
and not who I am. Through this, divine adoption into the family of God brings me certain attributes that I can acquire nowhere else. I get something out of this that I can't find anywhere else, but the Bible just brags about. First, Christ gives a believer a new life that comes with some things. A new direction, a new hope, new priorities, and a new outcome. Everything for me from this point forward is brand new. Now I will add, within the, you know, within the thematically, within the truth of the Scriptures, all those things are brand new, even if I am still held back by hardness of heart or lack of foresight. Brother Mike, God's just incredibly stubborn. Infinitely stubborn. He is going to have His way in our life. And we can either go along with it or we can suffer. But He will convince us. That's the amazing thing about this. It's not that somehow God just lays out these bricks in front of us and robotically forces us to walk them. God is just going to, in the life of a believer, get His point across. In the very same way, one of those that God has marked out for salvation will never fall and will never fail and will never die. Why? Because God simply won't take no for an answer. The depth of that whole teaching is the fact that God simply does not take no for an answer. You and I can go along with this or we can suffer. But in the end, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go along with it. We can make it hard or we can make it easy. We can make it, make it terrible and heart-wrenching at times. Or it can be all joy. But in the end, God's going to win in this. Look, Paul addresses this important issue in Romans 8.29. He said, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. As born-again believers in Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Savior. So it's not just this idea of salvation. It's not just this idea of heaven. Or just this idea of the eternal state of man. Um, new heavens and new earth, infinitely with our God. It's not just that. But he has, he has selected us for a different work. And that work is that we will be conformed to His image. So it's not just... Once again, we as humanity, we want to boil it down to what we get. We're, we're scared of hell, and, and we're in some way theologically in love with heaven, and we're averse to hell and in love with heaven, as if ever, we stop listening at the heaven part. We stop listening. We stop listening. We, we get on our knees and we weep it out, and then we get to that point and we find out that, that heaven is now our future home, and we stop caring after that. But, but His Word says that we are to be conformed to the image of His Son. My life is going to be radically changed into the image of Christ. From the beginning of the Lord's involvement with creation, He has foreordained that the lives we enjoy, set free from the bondage of sin, would be enslaved to the glory of Christ. In the very beginning, he, he has decreed this. He is not saving us so that we can live the way we've always lived. He is not saving us so that we can remain conformed to this world. He is not saving us so that we can enjoy those, those, those wicked things that for which precious blood has been shed to wash away. He did not do that. God has invested the blood in our lives that they might reveal that investment of blood to the world. Literally. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Savior. Why? 
in order to preach His gospel and share His message by word and example to the world around us. He didn't stop with His work of selection so that we could go off and do what we wanted to. Far, far too many have interpreted the Scriptures to be that way and done it to their peril. He has chosen us out of darkness into marvelous light so that we might reveal His truth to the world. Because God is hungry and desirous for His people. He is calling men and women from the nations to be conformed to His image. Never did the Lord institute a kind of salvation that aspired only to heaven and produce believers without conviction or holiness. Now there's two things, man, we've got to have tonight. There's two things. If I could rip hearts open and install myself, I have no ability to do that, but God does. That is conviction. That is really believing what we claim to believe to the point that it changes the, the work product of our lives. If there's anything that defines the church of the 21st century, it is an utter lack of conviction. We don't believe what we say we believe, because if we believed what we said we believed, we'd act radically different than we do. What we really do is we hope we believe what we think we believe, so that we can be saved, but at the same time, we really don't want to stand out in the crowd. Overwhelming majority of the church is terrified of the world around them. Terrified of people at work, terrified of people at school. Don't want to stand out. We don't want to be left out. We don't, want to, we don't want to be too religious. We don't want to be, as we called when I was a boy, holy rollers. You ever hear that term? We don't want to be that. We're scared of that. We're scared of the fact that somebody might look at us and see our faith first. We want to kind of go with the flow. We want the reward, but we don't want the suffering that goes with it. And it's nonsense. God simply doesn't do that. No conviction, and the second one goes hand in hand. No holiness. Man, a church that will fight you that says they can go where they want to go. I'm here to tell you this much right now, and I mean this. Absolutely, guys. When I realized, when I became a pastor, I realized I didn't have to confront teenagers about their lives. I had to confront senior adults about their lives who would argue you down that they could go to a casino or a barroom if they wanted to. And that's, a, that's an outright lie. You can. You can go there, but you can't take your cross with you. The thing we pledge to take with us every day, you can't take with you. It's just a lie. It's just an absolute lie. I don't even tell you this much. If you can't depend on the senior adults of a Southern Baptist church for holiness, how in the world can you depend on young adults or kids? If the standard is there, we can't pl- complain that kids don't, don't just live, live down to our standard. The will of God in our lives sets us apart by means of conviction and holiness. We're going to believe what we say and we're going to be willing to fight for it and even die for it. And we're going to live a life that's not contradictory of the first point. Look at what, what uh, the witness of the Scriptures preserved in the writings of John. 1 John uh, 1, 5-7 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. Believers in Christ will not walk in darkness, will not, not adopt the corrupt practices and barbaric habits of the secular world, and will flee from these things that decimate them in body, mind, and spirit. Oh, there's not this conquering of it, folks. Very, very simply, what, what, what the, the Word does in us, living in us and grafted into our lives, is, is bring us kind of back to our beginning. When you were younger and things got, got hot and, and, and you knew you weren't up to it, what did you do? You ran away. Create a generation of people that don't confront. We'll confront the world in, in intellectual matters. We'll confront the word, world in matters of faith. But we don't, we don't sit around with the world. We don't, we don't fellowship with the world. We don't, we don't party with the world. What do we do? We run away. We flee from those things that we know will devour us. We don't play around with those things. Got generations of Christians that are both incredibly weak and believe they're strong enough to deal with things. And the opposite biblically is true. You put a thief in your mouth, he'll steal your brains every time. Every time, without exception. God has purposely saved the elect for a heavenly purpose. That divine mandate on our lives is to live as if Christ were living in and through us, to walk in the light as He is in the light, enjoying the deep fellowship of each other while the blood of Christ continuously cleanses us from all sin. His Son cleanses us from all sin. Continuously. Continually. We are being cleaned of sin. The conforming to the image of the Son makes us adopted sons and daughters of Calvary's King. Next, adoption gives me the rights of a son or a daughter to an inheritance and a responsibility of that lineage. In his Ephesian letter, the Apostle Paul adds in 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, the will of the Lord is foreordained divine purpose in adopting undes un, um, undeserving men and women into the everlasting family of God has predestined that His people would receive a rightful inheritance as true sons and daughters. We are not on the outside peering through the fence. We are not those who have been mercifully spared but given nothing. Though thieves and murderers, though robbers and liars, God has washed away all of that with the blood of Christ and bestowed upon us, imputed upon us, the righteousness of Jesus. And with that imputed righteousness comes rights. We have by right now to some things. A rightful inheritance as true sons and daughters. I think that's an amazing statement because for so many of us, we have struggled with those familial relationships. We struggle with a relationship with our own fathers or struggle with a relationship with our own mothers. Painfully struggled. And what Christ promises 
is an inheritance, a sonship, and a daughterhood that is not conditional. An infinite God who could never be pleased with me has now declared me to be righteous, not because of what I accomplished, but because of what Jesus accomplished. He could see me in my blackness and in the, in the depth of my sin, but instead He sees what? He sees the glory of Christ. He has purchased for me an inheritance in the kingdom. Although it's unwarranted and it's unconscionable that worms like us would receive the prestigious appointment to the active grace of the Lord, the assurance of our inheritance is as trustworthy as the God of creation and is as, and as evident as the Spirit of the living God. Paul expresses this in Romans 8, 16-17. He begins by saying this, he says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit Himself, God the Holy Spirit, bears witness with, in, through our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The Spirit via our individual spirits that have been radically altered by the God of salvation. Not Folks, our spirit has changed. We had it once a dead spirit. And now we have a living spirit. We were not just once damaged in flesh, but we were damaged in spirit. We were broken and unacceptable to the living God. But He came in and through salvation has given us a new heart and a new spirit. So what we are in our essence has changed. Every capacity, every priority, every ability, all of that cast aside, dead and buried. Gone. As nailed to the cross as these sins that were condemning us to hell. All of that cast aside forever in its place. New man, a new woman. Why are we saved to the uttermost? Absolutely saved to the uttermost because Christ Jesus continues to make intercession for us. Because He lives to make intercession for us. But we are saved to the uttermost because the person that Christ continues, that He lives to make intercession for, is not the same person that was once lost. But we have been made radically different. Radically different. We are God's children. No longer abandoned to the evil of the world. No longer strangers and aliens wandering a dark land. Because that's who we were. Abandoned to death and shame. Never to find our way out. Never to find our way out. Ever. No matter how hard we looked or how hard we struggled or how hard we tried. No matter what we tried to do, what book we read. There was no hope for us. We were going to die just like that. The saddest part of it is, folks, is that deep in the depths of our hearts, we knew that. We knew that. In the depths of our hearts, when we peered at ourselves in the mirror, we knew. We knew that there was no way out. We knew that the ground underneath our feet was continually shrinking. That one of these days, a bill was going to come due that we were impossibly too poor to pay. 
We knew that if God did not miraculously act on our behalf, that we would die as we were. We knew this to be true. Knew this to be true. If you'll plumb the depths of your salvation, you'll find exactly that staring back at you. Just how hopelessly lost you were. How, how oppressively lost in your own sins you were. But now what are we? Inheritors of the realm of our Heavenly Father. A thief has been made the son of a king. A God-denier has been made a daughter of the king. A sexual pervert is now a son of the rightful king of all creation. A murderer. Every terrible thing that humanity can do can and will be covered under the blood of Jesus. We are heirs of the kingdom of God. And this comes with the requirement that we suffer as Jesus suffered. For the glory of the Lord and the truth of the gospel. See, He didn't just save us, folks. He didn't just save us to think about the inheritance and to dwell on the inheritance. He saved us, for lack of a better term, as grist for the mill. He saved us that we would go forth armed with the gospel carrying our crosses on bruised shoulders, ready to share the gospel in an instant, ready to live it out every day, ready to testify to what God has done, ready to preach if necessary, always so that the word of God can be heard, souls can be saved, and much fame come to the name of Jesus. That's why He saved us. He didn't save us for the reward. He saved us so that our lives could be part of that reward. That we live in such a way that Christ is honored and He's esteemed by our very lives. So He approaches us today. He approaches today with this one singular idea. This one sin as I close. Does my life today bring Him honor and glory? Does it bring esteem to His name? Or am I trying to live a life that's under the radar? that never takes a stand for what Christ demands against those things for which He died? Am I trying to honor God with cowardice? Or will I honor God with obedience? Which will it be today? Let's pray together.